Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, now, for the age of all ages, Amin. I'm going to tell you a story, but only pay attention. And after I, uh, I tell you a couple of things. So I had the blessing of being in the Holy Land a few years ago. And uh, as I was vi- visiting the Church of the Resurrection, one of the Coptic monks uh, saw me. I was standing in a huge line and he saw me. He's like, I want to come this way. I'll show you how to get around. And he was able to get me in. And I, was, I was able to get in there and visit and enter uh, in the sepulcher and it was great. I'm not going to say that having connections isn't a good thing. Clearly it worked in my favor that time. But I asked him if it was always this busy. And he says, no, not really. If you want the whole church to yourself, come early in the morning. Come before nine. After nine, that's when tourists come in. In the morning, it's only the pilgrims, only the people coming to pray. And then he told me the same thing, and by the way, is true for the liturgy. People come early, those are people coming to pray. But people coming late, they're closer, I'm not saying they're tourists, but what do tourists come to do? To these places, to these holy places, to, to things in general, they, they come looking for attractions, for entertainment, snap a picture, things like that. And I've, I've seen all sorts of, you know, uh, of selfies and things in, uh, uh, in the Church of the Resurrection and all over the Holy Land. But this is what basically tourists come to do. But pilgrims come to do something else. Pilgrims hardly take any pictures, if any at all, because they're coming to pray. And I want to encourage all of us to come as pilgrims to the liturgy. Come early as, you, as early as you can. And I know all of us are trying and struggling, and we have reasons, very valid reasons, uh, not to be able to be here very early. But don't rest. Whatever you're doing, you're doing great, and keep improving. So if you're able to improve your arrival time by a few minutes, great. Next year, maybe it's a few minutes more. And the year after, a few minutes more than that. And we'll keep improving. But don't ever rest and say, it's enough. I make it. I make it sometime before communion. That's good enough. No. Keep coming earlier and earlier. The second thing is something one of the saints said. St. Augustine, commenting on this gospel, he said, there, was, there has never been a time when there was no war. Uh, famines are common. All the signs that we read about in the gospel, they're very common. So what are we to think? When we hear about a war, right now there's a war, right? Are we to think that this is a sign of the end times? This is a sign of the second coming. And he says, no, this isn't it. This isn't meant to be for us to kind of figure out, calculate when the deadline is and work up to the deadline. But instead, it's a call to live the life of preparedness. Being always prepared. It's not about figuring out when the deadline is when the second coming is, and then living it up, up until, maybe, you know, uh, 
a few days right before and then we go repent and things are good. No, it's about living the life of repentance throughout every day and every hour of our lives. Now I'll tell you a story. Have you heard of the story of Azuz? Okay. Now, this young man worked at a mechanic shop. And one day, the owner of the shop told him, So the owner of the shop told him that the mayor is passing by. So Azuz is like, I know the mayor. He knows me very well. We hang out all the time. So the owner of the shop is like, what are you doing? Like, are you trying to pull something here? So um, he told him, okay, prove it. So when the, when the mayor passed by the neighborhood, he stopped right in front of the shop. Big limousine pulls up. He gets out. And he's saying hello to people. And then he sees Azuz from the distance. He's like, Azuz. I haven't seen you in a while. How have you been? So the owner of the shop is, is shocked that he actually knows the mayor. And the mayor knows him and knows him by name. So after he talks, he's like, how do you know the mayor? He's like, yeah, we play golf all the time. Like, okay. He didn't expect that. So after a while, he told him, by the way, it's not just the mayor. You know Joe Biden? I know him. So uh, he's like, now you're pulling my leg. Now for sure you're telling me a lie. He's like, no, I'll prove it. He's like, okay, go ahead, prove it. So he told him, in a few days, there's a press conference for the president. Watch it. And in a few days, the owner of the shop is sitting down in the evening watching the press conference. And out with the president comes Azuz. And they're coming together, and they're talking, and he's standing right next to him when he's making his announcements. And after he comes back from Washington, he goes back home and he tells him, see, I told you. He's like, how do you know Biden? He's like, oh, we play golf all the time. So he's like, but it's not just Biden. You know, Pope, Pope Francis, the Pope of Rome. He's like, no, now for sure you're telling me a lie. So he told him, this, I'll prove it to you in person. So they travel to Rome together. And they, they go to the Vatican City and St. Peter's Square, and he told him, you wait here, and I'll be back in a few minutes. So in a few minutes, the crowds are gathered, and the Pope comes out of the balcony, and Azuz comes with him. So, you know, the owner obviously can't believe it. So after everything is said and done, Azuz goes back to where he left the boss, and he doesn't find him. So people tell him, he passed out and they took him to the hospital. So he went to the hospital and said, are you okay? I need to make sure he's all right. And did you pass out when you saw me on the balcony? He's like, no, I passed out when someone was asking, who's that on the balcony with Azuz? <laughs> so this story is kind of funny, but not because it sounds ridiculous, but because on a much deeper level, on a, on a very ironic level, this is exactly how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as Azuz. We're the center of the universe. Everyone knows us. Everything revolves around us. And that's a very dangerous recipe. A, a recipe for disaster. For many will come in my name, the Lord says, saying, I am he and will deceive many. If anyone comes to you now and says, I am he, will you believe him? How is it that many will be deceived? Why is it that many 
are, uh, are said to be deceived. And are, are they deceiving on purpose? Or is something else happening here? Or are they themselves deceived? And if so, why? Are they also raised to believe maybe that they are the center of the universe? Kind of like the savior coming across. We see videos all the time of people saying, I have the best advice, financial advice, relationship advice, follow me and I'll tell you how to solve all of your problems. Follow me and I'll save you from all of your troubles. Not necessarily coming in and saying, I am the Messiah, but coming in, you know, thinking that I have it all figured out. And the question is, when we, when we look around us today, and especially mom and dad, especially parents, are we raising a generation of children who believe that they are the center of the universe? A generation where authenticity doesn't mean search for truth, but it means self-expression. So everybody's all about self-expression. In, in an age where everybody is copying everybody, everybody wants to express themselves. And ironic, when they try to express themselves, they end up getting the same stuff, buying the same stuff, uh, saying the same stuff as everybody else. But they just want to say that they are expressing themselves. And this self-expression means putting on this persona that you can order through Amazon. Right? They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And parents have the best intentions. There is no parent who wants something bad for their children. Correct? They want the best for their children. And parents want to follow the best advice, best parenting advice out there. And a very good piece of advice is that kids who feel good about themselves do better in life. They feel good, they do better. They feel good, they do better. Now, no one has tested this, but everybody's saying this, including Oprah. Everybody's saying this. Kids who feel good do better. But there's no evidence whatsoever to show that this is actually true. And parents wanting to be parents, and wanting loving, and wanting to give their kids every advantage, they say if a little bit is good, a lot must be better. Sounds reasonable, right? And the result? In 2001, there was a poll uh, conducted by Time Magazine and CNN. And in that poll, they found that 80% of people thought that kids were more spoiled at the time, in 2001, than they were in the 80s and 90s. And in the same poll, two-thirds of parents described their own kids as spoiled. So this is how Time Magazine puts it. Go to the mall or a concert or a restaurant, and you can find them in the wild. The kids who have never been told no. Whose sense of power and entitlement leaves onlookers breathless. Sand-kicking, foot-stomping, arm-twisting, whining, despots whose parents presumably deserve the company of the monsters they have, after all, created. This is what Time Magazine is saying. Like, you've created these monsters, you deserve their company. And most parents are coming around to this fact that never saying no to children is a bad thing. This is not a good, this creates monsters. This creates self-centered people who can only see things from their own perspective. And the way parents uh, do this 
or make this worse is through something called inflated feedback. They just overemphasize and celebrate every little thing a child does. I'm not saying neglect your children. There has to be a middle ground, balance somewhere, right? Now imagine if God dealt with us this way. We are his children. If God dealt with us this way and inflates the feedback and every little thing that you do, wow, you've done this thing. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. We would grow up to be monsters. Monsters who are self-absorbed, who are self-centered, who are, as Mark chapter 13, verse 6 says, will be deceived, easily deceived, because no longer is a sense of truth outside of ourselves. It's inside. We're taught that it's all about me, inside I'm the center. You look at your phone, the phone makes you feel like you're the center. You, every, every streaming service tells you you're the center. You don't have to wait for stuff. You can just watch it on demand. When you demand it, where you demand it, and how you demand it. And yet, like St. John says in his first epistle, God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. God gives us a different way. God gives us a different way. A way that protects us from being deceived. It's called the way of ascesis. Asceticism. When you, say, when you hear the word asceticism, what do you immediately think? Monks, nuns, uh, matanias, fastings, long prayers and vigils, right? But in its basic sense, and St. Paul uses the word, it means training. Training. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Sometimes we read this gospel and when we hear it, we think it's just, it's inevitable. I just, I hope I'm not the one who's going to be deceived. Maybe it's me, maybe it's you, maybe it's you, maybe, who knows, I, I just hope. But in fact, it's not just as, as random as, you know, we think sometimes. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. A child is a reflection of his parent. And that's why Christ called the Pharisees the sons of the devil. Because your father the devil. Because they're a reflection of the devil. His thoughts, his works, his attitude, his words, they're a reflection of him. And he's saying, you're my children. You're a reflection of me. And because you're a reflection of me, you're not self-centered. You're not going to be easily deceived. The tempter is going to come and try to deceive you, but it's not going to work for you. It's not going to work with you. So a couple of points to keep in mind. If the role of parents was simply to provide and protect, then the state would replace all parents, right? The state provides, the state protects. So what, why do we need parents? Parents are needed for much more than that. It's not just about putting food on the table and making sure that they're protected. Parenting is about much more than that. And if that's all we're offering our kids, we are doing them a disservice because parenting is, all, is much more than just providing and protecting. And it turns out that both 
father and mother, both parents, are in a relationship of discipleship. They themselves are children in order for them, in order for them to be able to disciple their children. If they're not disciples of Christ, they cannot make their children disciples because their children will become a reflection of who they are, whatever that may be. So all of the members of a family need to be disciples of Christ, not just by word, but by deed, obedience to God. Now, needless to say, and especially for us Egyptians, consequences, we're all about consequences. But consequences need to take their natural order. Sometimes we intervene with the consequences. Sometimes we want to make the consequences worse or faster. Or sometimes we want to remove consequences altogether. Both of these things are unhelpful. Let the consequences take their natural order. But keep something else in mind to keep this balanced. Only pour as much water as you're willing to clean up. Keep things within reason. And finally, compassion altruism. Teach our children to have compassion, and to be compassionate, and to think of the other. We hear a lot of slogans today by a lot of groups and presumably a lot of parents in those groups saying parents are first educators. And it's all about the curriculum and what to put in the curriculum, what to take out of the curriculum, things that are inappropriate, things that uh, are not aligning with our faith and all of these things. And I wish parents would follow through and, and really not just say it as a slogan, but become that, become the first educator because you are, because you are the first educator. What the children see at home, that is what they become. You are, in fact, the first educator. And it's not just a slogan. It is true. So when they see mom and dad at home interacting a certain way, dealing with adversity, dealing with arguments, dealing with disagreement, this is how they learn to do all of these things. We have Sunday school in church. But the role of Sunday school is not what you think it is. Sunday school, when you, if you bring your children to the Sunday school, servant and say teach my child to pray teach my child to be christian it's not how it works that's not going to work guaranteed you're setting up yourself for disappointment the sunday school the role of the sunday school servant is to help you empower you to do that job because no one else can do that job outsourcing education trying to get someone else to teach my children to do doesn't work it has to start at home and like I said, without doing this, without doing this, we're in danger of creating a generation that is inward looking, inward focused, um, full of narcissistic uh, tendencies. And what we see today, we see how this is all playing out. And we see in, uh, in social media, we see in schools, we see in the mall, we see everywhere how this is exactly playing out. But what we do find also is that with families who are strong and well-connected and spend a lot of time together, not, you know, uh, not fighting or arguing, but spending time being alive, living together, not just kind of passing through uh, on the way to the activity or on the way to work or on the way to school, just actually spending time together. It is better to have less activities and more time together than more activities and less time together. It's better to have less things, working less and spend time together than working more and spending less time together. And this is exactly what Mark 13, 6 is, is talking about. 
those who will be deceived, it's not that it's that simple, you know, to be deceived. It's not that simple to think that I have the solutions for all the problems of the world. It's not that simple. You must be trained to think this way, to behave this way, to respond to this way. Because if a deceiver comes in and says, I am the Messiah, I will deliver you from all your problems, we will say, no, we have the Messiah. Jesus Christ is in our midst, Emmanuel. It's, we're not going to be deceived, right? And the reason we're not going to be deceived is because we grew up in the church. We were formed by the church. We were discipled by the church. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.